the token of the address in alchemy as being the child of the subtle moon. So that we have a basic triad established here of the sun, the moon, and the master. A triad which occurs in many esoteric systems. We know that the sun represents in alchemy the spiritual source or father of all things. The moon, the mysterious mother, or the mother of mysteries, great Diana, goddess of the Ephesians. We know therefore that heaven and earth, or God and nature, father and mother, son and moon, generate the progeny or the child in conformity with the concept of the 47th proposition of Euclid. If therefore the adept is the child of the sun and moon, we know rather well his symbolism and the place would be occupied in the triune nature of man as he was studied and considered by ancient philosophy. We know that spirit and man through their moonings and bundings, produce the mysterious power which the Greeks termed the soul. But the adept is therefore the diamond soul, as in the symbolism of Northern Buddhism. But he represents the power of the soul as the great transmuting agent in the universe. What then is the alchemical concept of soul? How are we to understand it? And how does this understanding differ from the more popular systems that we know today? It is obvious to the students of the medic arts that the soul represents a compound. But it represents the combining or uniting of two qualities in themselves not to be combined or united except through some catalyzing agent. Spirit and matter in themselves are not easily brought into a compound. So the alchemist is told that the secret of his art is to make fire burn in water, and that water must feed the flame. Now we realize now in this that fire and water now play the part of the king and queen, or the heaven and earth. And that fire must be sustained by water, yet in our common experience, water extinguishes fire. So we are dealing not with the crude and rude elements that we know, but with certain mystical symbols, allegories based in chemistry, but extending far beyond our normal chemical speculations. The soul being a compound, 
the soul becomes the instrument of function upon a level of being which is infinitely more subtle and refined than that of our objective life. To the alchemist, therefore, the mystery of the soul, its creation, its unfoldment, its development, was, uh, this mystery was carefully concealed under a series of chemical formulas. And each disciple was expected and presumed to be able, ultimately, to solve these formulas. Each was a reader to which he must give his own internal meditation. It was a symbol upon which he must contemplate, and through which he must release his own instinctive apperception of these mysteries of life. <coughs> then let us try to analyze these processes creating the soul, and why man peculiarly endowed with this instrument has a definitely unique among the created things of the earth and of nature. <coughs> to understand this, we must borrow something from the later Egyptian religion, that phase of it which developed under the Greek burials of Egypt, the Ptolemy, where the mysteries and rituals of the earlier religion were brought under certain philosophical disciplines from Greece and thereby made more intelligible to us. In the Egyptian mystery, the soul was a secondary structure consisting of seven essential internal ingredients. These in themselves, the Egyptians call the seven souls. <laughs> and to each of these souls was given one of the great psychic behavior problems of human experience and consciousness. Man's soul was formed within. But he had what might be termed his milk soul or his infant soul that had one duty to perform. Later this soul gave way to a second. More correctly, the soul itself unfolded and became a second kind of soul which had to do with the extension and expansion of his body and the principle of growth, the unfoldment from within himself, the extension of his vital nervous system throughout the fabric of his body, the gradual control of body by the power within it. Later this gave way to the third soul, which was the generative soul, which taking hold at puberty or adolescence began the process of setting into motion the great reproductive power of soul energy. And so it proceeded step by step through these and other forms until it finally came to the adept soul, or the highest part of man's psychical life. And this soul also, having absorbed the other six, became the sovereign and complete ruler over the individual. And if this soul was perfected during life, this individual then had a consciousness after death and received a conscious place in immortality. This then was not the soul that finished and must die. 
But the soul is to go on to the abode of the gods, to the blessed land of Amenta. So the soul of man was something he had to earn, something he had to create or build by his own activity. And this soul manifested to him through the unfoldment of his own inner life. The maturing of his soul was his great work. And having reached the maturity of the body, growth must go on. And the person in the body must grow, must unfold its own potential and achieve its own complete identity. When it did so, the soul then became, more or less, the vehicle of the self and the individual stepping across from body took up his natural and proper abode within the structure of his own soul. He was then what the Egyptians call a blessed soul, one established in the lasting. And having achieved then to the adept state. In a way, this is the same concept that underlies the concept of the Hindu Mahatma. For Mahatma simply means great soul. A being in whom this internal power has accomplished its transmutation or its wonderful work. In Christianity, the messianic soul is represented by the avatar or the system. And this is the Christ in you, which is the hope of glory, in which if it be lifted up, will raise all things unto it. Thus, the death and resurrection of the Messiah represents the soul cycle, or the death and resurrection of the life, or the life. Or as it would be termed in alchemy, the death and restoration of the man. The soul then becomes the seed or theater of the great regenerative power of man. And it is composed by the release of these two polarized extremes of consciousness. One of the releases is achieved from below by the building of what we call the personality. And the personality, when properly and naturally mature, makes its positive contribution to the psychic and soul life of the individual. Through the building and integration of the personality, we achieve, therefore, one of the essential elements of the soul. We become masters of the working of salt. For salt represents, in alchemy, uh, the power of experience, or the growth of man from below upward. The growth of his lower nature, we will say, the unfoldment of it toward the light of truth. Now the lower nature of man ascends gradually through the physical, through the emotional and mental life, until finally it reaches the apex of its own achievement on the level of reason. Therefore, from below upward, man builds gradually the rational power, the <coughs> rational faculties of his own nature. At the same time, the universality at the source of man builds downward, uh, creating step by step man's overtones or spiritual values, which gradually descending 
through the great powers of created science and their final manifestation in the mingling of the upper and lower triangles, the triangle of man's growth from below and the inverted triangle of man's descent, these two meeting in their apices uh, form this mysterious figure that resembles an hourglass, in which Father Time carries on his hand in the alchemical reason. Thus from above, or from the internal spiritual life of man, one force flows. From below, from the external material life of man, another force flows. These two forces meet, meeting in the form of salt and sulfur. And the meaning the meeting of these two makes possible the birth of the homunculus. Yet this in itself cannot occur except with the presence of the age of a third of androgene elements, which is mercury. And mercury is a very powerful catalytic agent in alchemy. It makes possible the building or binding of the two principles. Now, let us try to understand this a little bit from the level of philosophy so that we can follow the alchemical symbolism Man consists in the esoteric systems of antiquity of three essential natures. One is termed spirit, one is termed soul, the other is termed body. These three constitute a triad of conditions. They are represented in the universe by the great theological triad of heaven, earth, and hell. And they are represented wherever symbolism arises as a threefold division of existence. A division which consists of a superior part and an inferior part and a middle region between. In the Nordic religions of uh, the Gothic rites of Germany and the Ordinic rites of Scandinavia, the example tree or the tree of universe is very much key to this symbolism. At the root of the tree is down in the darkness of Kenheim, where the serpents of oblivion are forever gnawing at root. The other part of the tree extends to the highest of all of the gods in Haskar. And here the spirit dwells, and only seated upon his great throne looks down upon the world. In the middle distance between the world of darkness below and the world of light above is Midgard, the abode of mortals. And here upon a flat plate-like surface in the old Gothic concept was the world surface as we see it, with mountains and rivers and continents. And here all the races of human beings dwelt, suspended or supported upon the branches of this great tree, twixt heaven and earth or twist the above and the below, between spirit and matter, ruling over all things. Thus humanity collectively is emblematic of the world soul. The human being is upon the level of the world soul development. And mankind is therefore the personification of the principle of soul. 
who is composed therefore of an animal nature which is less than soul, and of a divine nature that is more than soul. And between these he has his existence, partaking of both, and possessing within himself the power of extending his own consciousness above or below the medium line upon which he exists. Thus the individual, as the Greeks pointed out, may verge by inclination downward, and when the focal point of consciousness descends in the direction of body, the result is a materialist, or an individual becomes more and more completely immersed in matter or in material things. He was like Narcissus, who seeing his own reflection in the pool, hastens to embrace his likeness and falling into the pool with ground. Thus the soul of man, seeking its own likeness in matter, rushes toward it, and in that way descends into the mystery of generation and becomes possessed and obsessed by bodies. Plato gives us a very good description of this experience. On the other hand, man is capable by a positive expansion of himself of ascending above the medium level of soul and approaching a spiritual state. He thereby, through his aspiration to the unfoldment of his own spiritual nature, becomes an idealist rather than a materialist. And by his ideals, he verges toward reality. Yet man, if he descends, may not remain constantly upon this lower level because he is superior to it and must inevitably slip back to his true place. Likewise, if he ascends above the level of his own integration, he may not be able to maintain this elevation, but falls back again into his own place. But man has a certain aura, a certain field of extension, either upward or downward, by which he can actually experience something of the divine and something of the base, something that is better than he is, something that is worse than he is. So he occupies this middle distance and is the actual embodiment of the power of soul itself. The alchemist conceives the soul to be composed of the seven metals, and therefore, in symbolism, Working with the soul involves the transformation of these metals, the power of releasing from the metals their soul energy or power. Well, as Alchemy points out, when you are working with material medicine, you must work with material elements. But when you are seeking to remedy the sickness of the soul, you must work not with the bodies of the minerals and metals, but with their souls or the energies which are locked within them. Thus it is not with growth of food metal that we shall correct the deficiencies of the soul. We must therefore have a special and refined metal which we have passed through certain regeneration. Now there is an old figure of uh, the seven arts and sciences or the seven metals in which we find the metals identifies with the arts and sciences, one with logic, another with rhetoric, one with mathematics, and so on. 
we then come to the realization that the seven liberal arts and sciences contain within themselves the keys to the transformation of the soul. Man has a body of learning, whether it be astronomy, mathematics, music, architecture, all of these subjects. And these seven arts and sciences arise because of soul. They originate in soul. They are vitalized into their own existence by the energy of soul. They belong to the level of soul. If they are debased, they become material arts and sciences. If they are spiritualized, they become divine arts and sciences. But both of these are extensions. One builds downward and the other upward. The natural state of the arts and sciences being on the level of the soul itself. Therefore, now today the problem is to discover through art the means of releasing through the arts and sciences the mysterious soul powers which they possess. <laughs> These releases correspond very, very closely with your yogi discipline. They correspond with all of your ancient mystical rites. Because these said the arts and sciences is the outer vestment of a mystery. The individual who is willing and able to accept only the material forms of these things becomes worthy upon the level of the mind and body only. But those who seek the mystery of the metal, who seek the mystery of the soul locked in them, will find that each art and science contains within it a secret remedy for the efficiency of the soul power. <coughs> Thus alchemy begins the process of transmuting knowledge, transmuting learning from a material to a soul level. How are we then to understand the soul power locked within an art or science? Well, let us take one of these arts and sciences for the moment. In order the Dionysians took architecture and revealed the mystery that was concealed within its symbolism. Let us pause and take, for instance, music. To see what music means, because it belongs to the mystery of the soul. Music is a soul art. It is an art which is capable of revealing to man more of the constitution of his own psychic nature. It was obvious to recognize that the lute or the lyre could be used to represent the entire mystery of soul power. He therefore created the instrument upon which he could play certain enchanted melodies. He learned the power of music, and in India uh, and in China, the esoteric arts of music have been long considered and studied. By degrees, through the knowledge of music, the application of its principles, man can come to a clear and concise understanding of the nature of his own inner psychic life. Music becomes not only a key to interpret the soul, but it becomes a powerful instrument for the expression of the soul and its powers and energies. Thus, each of the arts and sciences becomes one of the dimensions of the soul's release project, and in turn, gives man one of the facets or keys to his own understanding of soul life. 
it is reality, it is being, it is actuality, it is universal existence, forever existing, and forever full of life, forever germinal or seminal, filled with peace, forever bestowing itself. On the level of man's experience, this becomes his spiritual nature. And he conceives of a spiritual entity, nourished and sustained by this spiritual life of the universe. And he therefore accepts the king both as spirit and as God, and makes the king the administrator of all the laws, principles of nature, and the source of all concepts of divinity, the one, the beautiful, and the good. This being is total and complete light. Light not of the physical world, but of the inner world. The light of the fullness of spiritual grace in all matters. This is then sulfur, which is the fire which sustains itself forever, and is the principle of fire in all things. This is the source of the fire of aspiration. This is the source of the ever-burning land from the altar fire that never fails. It is the symbol of the spiritual identity, the spiritual interior of everything that exists. Salt, we must remember, is associated with the tragedy of Lot's wife, who turned back and was turned into a pillar of salt. <coughs> salt is the symbol of crystallization. Salt then tells us the story of body. It tells us the story of matter. It tells us of the extreme polar opposite of absolute life is relative privation of life. Because the alchemist did not believe that there could be a place anywhere which was totally devoid of life. <coughs> Thus the greater degree of life is sulfur and the least conceivable degree of life is salt. He turned it on the moral plane where the philosopher of old said that evil is the least degree of good. Therefore, salt is the least degree of sulfur. The salt must consume salt because in this universe there is no part of it in which reality does not have an existence. But in sulfur we have the total expression of reality, and in salt we have the failure, the total failure of expression of reality. As the alchemist says, sulfur sleeps in the salt, it dies in the salt. The universal consciousness dies in matter. It is obliterated by the fact of matter. It works within matter. For what is matter finally? but infinite life expressing uh, through certain qualities, through certain attributes. Yet this life we do not comprehend as life, but regard as the antithesis of life. Therefore, spirit and its antithesis are sulfur and salt. Now in the beginning, according to the opening chapters of Genesis, uh, God created the heavens of the earth and caused to emerge from his own nature the two great principles, the king and queen, the sulfur and salt. 
and the cause or the abyss was without shape and void. And this power which was creating divided the firmament and placed part of the firmament above and part below. And he divided the deep from the deep. And in this process of causing this division to occur, we can use another very interesting alchemical device. One of the early books of the great alchemist Lansbrick, we have a scene which shows the king or the supreme power moving in a whirlwind over the face of the deep. And we find the great abyss lying spread out below, and we have the scene of the, of the power of God moving above and the great death below. And the waters which were above the firmament were divided from the waters which were beneath the firmament. And the waters beneath the firmament were ocean. And the waters above the firmament were Shemayim, the water of life. And in the midst of these powers, in the midst of this great division that took place, there suddenly emerged the grand form of Elohim, the Creator. And the Elohim, or the builders, the seven powers, <coughs> shooting out from the mystery of the world, are suspended between heaven and earth. And here the seven powers gather together the form of the world causing it to arise between the this and abyss, causing it to exist between time and eternity, and fashioning it magnificently from the abstract principle of sulfur and salt. And the seven powers which bring forth the creation, the Elohim, the vowels of the sacred word, are represented in the book of Lansbury by Mercury, the ancient the great power of the Cadillacer, the winged being, the messenger from heaven to earth and from earth to heaven, who carrying his mysterious rod round with the serpent, brings forth from the below the shadow of the world form and unites it above with the descending hierarchy of the world spirit. So between these two extremes of Ether and chaos, time and eternity, being and not being. And out of the great uh, darkness that they will call the Indians comes forth the mystery. The mystery of the primary and primordial generation. And this power, this mystery which came forth is the world soul. Described by the Greek office as things with many heads, bearing all manner of likenesses and breaking through the age of time, born of the age which is made by the worms of ether and chaos. All these symbols go right back to the same major principle, namely that the ancients recognized that existence was the result of the striving of polarities or of opposite beings. And understand it comes to practically the same concept. 
that life and life as we know it are the friction of the motions, the qualitative motions of basic energy. Not the quantitative, but the qualitative motions. And that these bring forth the revealed form of things out of the great abyss, out of the great darkness. This is the meaning of the Hindu concept that these creations came as the result of will and yoga. The duality produces between itself a being in which its own attributes are present. And this being is called the soul. The universal soul, fashioned in the womb of chaos. And this soul becomes the basis of the creation of the human soul, which in turn is the child of striving, the progeny of the mingling of heaven and earth, of time and eternity, of being and not being. For the soul of man is engendered by being and not being, by realization and ignorance, uh, by experience and intuition, by reason and love, and by the millions of all the opposites which grow forth into this vast psychic container from which will be born the radiant form of the deity baby, bursting from the egg and taking power and supremacy over the dark field of mystery in which it was created for conceived. Soul, therefore, represents the objectification of spirit and matter brought together as a being. And all things that emerge in the middle distances of man's experience are therefore distinctly related to soul itself. Now in the further development of this same allegory, we have Adam introduced as a being into which uh, the breath of life was breathed. Now, if we go back into the ancient Kabbalistic legends about Adam, we find that Adam's body was composed of the seven planets, that each one of these great powers of space bestowed an attribute upon him, and each of these in turn gave a traitor to Adam, so that when he became a living thing, Adam contained within himself the seven souls. And at that time it was also conceived that he was androgynous, male-female, in two forms, united back to back. And that the Lord of the Elohim cut them asunder and made the male-female being into a male and female being. Here again is a definite allegory about the soul. For the soul itself is essentially an androgynous being. We have a, a story which we told you about some time ago in connection with Balzac's story of Therapeuta, Therapeuta, <laughs> in which we have again this allegory of the soul. This particular treatment developed according to the philosophy of Therapeuta's work. So in the alchemical, to return to it once more, we have the union of the of life and chaos of time and eternity within a bubble. We have the miniature replica of all that has been done, taking place within the soul of the human being himself, the alchemical resource. And in the study of this mystery, we find that man recapitulates by a series of renovations 
or a series of augmentations as they are termed in chemistry. The history and generation of his world, the formation of his own nature and being, and the final release of his own soul. The life of the soul is composed of the strivings of spirit and matter and is bound into this artificial compound by the magic wand of earlier. It becomes essential to our subject to try to understand more about the reasons uh, for its existence and the ultimate end for which it is intended. The reason why the soul has to have an existence is because man himself is actually a soul being. He is therefore a soul being without a body on the level of his own nature. This is due to the emblematic or symbolic fall. For by the fall, a soul fell into a body. And because of this situation, it lost identity or orientation in its own nature. As man now lives in a physical body, it was the opinion of the alchemist that he lives in exile. He is in a kind of underworld. And this physical body can never be his home and can never be his natural abode. He lives in this as a same tenant, as a condition of insufficiency and insecurity. Because the being within the body is not content. The individual is not able to be completely a body because he possesses attributes and qualities which do not belong to body. <coughs> they belong to a higher level of existence than that which man at present experiences. Yet man is not by nature capable of becoming a spirit and of ascending into the abode of eternal blessedness. He is yet imperfect in many ways and in need of great experience and wisdom. But he has a home that is proper to him. And that home is a different kind of body. A body real but invisible. A body which contains within it the archetypal forms of all physical things. But it's much more subtle, much more sufficient to him than the form which he now occupies. In the alchemical symbolism of the early Jewish alchemists, the fall of man, his exile from paradise, and all these things are brought into the chemical symbols. Because it is assumed that man is a wanderer, a stranger in body, that as long as he remains completely in his body, he remains in a state inferior to his natural destiny. Therefore, as his growth proceeds, as he advances in the unfoldment of his own nature, he begins to build a new body within himself. A body which originates within his own heart. For the heart is the womb of the second body. And in this heart is born with him, within him, the concept of a superior place. <coughs> a concept of a life apart from body. A life not an immortality after death but a functioning existence. A man has lived a long time 
and his race has existed a long time. And just as sure that man through his achievements has built a complex material culture that is passed on from generation to generation, so through his inner experience he has propagated the soul. This soul goes on and grows from generation to generation, just as his outer civilization increases. Therefore, the individual born into the world today is not born soulless. He is born as a compound of mind, soul, body, spirit. And within him is this unfinished soul, which is like the unfinished temple of Solomon the King, which is the temple of his own inner life. He therefore has a certain sharing or participating in his soul a sharing which is greater than that of the aboriginal world. He has greater soul power than the savage. He has greater soul maturity than the barbarian. Yet he has not yet accomplished the magnum opus. He has not perfected the soul body. So as he grows up in his material life today, he grows up as a partial soul within a body. This partial soul has its dreams and its hopes and its aspirations, but it also has its limitations. It has its imaginative and creative faculties, but it is also bound by appetites and illusions to the material life around it. So each individual inherits an unfinished soul. And the completion of this soul must be left to one of two things, either to the keeping of old father Cronus, which is time which means that in the fullness of time, nature will perfect the soul of man, even as it perfects the diamond in the coal. But alchemy says, nature has its own path and its own way, but man may perfect art, and with art, perfect nature. And it is possible for man, by the genius and contrite application, of that which he knows to be true, it is possible for him to anticipate and then augment, increase the processes of growth within himself, so that he may advance the state of his own soul, that he may gradually approach the adept state of soul power. To do this is not to depart from nature, but to aid it and to assist the man himself in the perfection of his own inner life, which is rooted within the nature of his soul. To do this again requires a great art, a great discipline, a great science of human regeneration. And under the name of alchemy was concealed this mystical art, this mystical science by which man might approach the actual completion of his own soul life. Now the beginning of these transformation or transmutation was then the study of chemistry. And the alchemist was told, it's very simple. Well, the first thing you have to find are pure elements. So the alchemist was told that he must have some way of, of securing his basic material upon which the experiments in the laboratory depended. He had to find a very definite and particular kind of salt. And this is the salt of the earth. 
which is the same kind of call that is referred to in the biblical story. That we are the salt of the earth. Now, how to find this salt? And the one school of alchemy, there were several, one school of alchemy says that the only way to secure this basic material was from bees. Therefore, what you had to do was to go out at night in certain regions where the dew was heavy. And you were to place glass plates, raised from the ground and insulated. Uh, by wood or some non-conducting substance so that they would not ground or would not discharge their magnetic field. And you were to collect upon the surface of these plates dew. And you were to catch it or place it in vessels carefully uh, prepared for this purpose. Absolutely clean and capable of being completely and hermetically sealed. Now this might sound like a difficult experiment, and yet I've known a number of practicing alchemists today who have succeeded right here in the mountains back of San Bernardino. Some of these alchemists have been able to collect as much as 10 or 20 gallons of dew off a glass plate. It is not an impossible thing to do. Because they believe in the alchemical tradition that this dew of heaven held within itself certain powers captured from the rays of the stars. Also that this dew, having never touched the earth, was like the druid mistletoe that had to be cut from the tree without being permitted to touch the earth or lost its power. That this dew could then be passed through certain experimentation by which the powers within it the occult virtue of the planet could be augmented and increased. Now I know one or two rather sad experiments more than that particular uh, rather disagreeable procedure also. I know one, at least one case in which a five-gallon bottle exploded. <coughs> and there was actually, which is the do, a sufficient fermentation taking place to cause a tremendous combustion and pressure. Now all this belongs to the physical story of alchemy. But always the alchemist was told that the great problem in the first solve was to secure pure elements for the preparation of his work. He was told, for instance, that he had to have pure copper. Not the copper you could buy even in the laboratory or in the chemist shop, but pure copper which could only be found under certain conditions and in certain places. Pure silver, pure gold, pure mercury. But these various elements had to be pure, pure beyond any knowledge that we had of them. Well, the implication as you go through the story is rather obvious. The beginning of the great transmutation was to find the pure forms of the basic emotions, instincts, appetites, and attitudes of the human We had to find, for example, not just copper, but pure love. We had to find not just silver, 
But one of the imaginations. We have to find a link for pure reason. Because each one of these elements was tied to a substance and to a planet and to a power in nature. Each one of these basic principles had to be pure. So we begin with an elaborate series of purifications, which are nothing more or less than a restatement of what were called the cathartic disciplines of um, classical philosophy. The individual looking for these pure elements uh, could only hope to find them within himself. So the beginning of his art was the discovery of the purity of his own basic soul power. He had to purify the energies of the soul which he must use in the accomplishment of the great experiment. Thus was the problem presented to him that in all probabilities he would not be able to find these hours in an absolutely pure state. Consequently, his first duty after he had discovered elements suitable to his purpose was the continuance of the process of purification by fire. <laughs> 